0: Welcome to Sports Performance Radio, the science of athletic excellence. Welcome to Sports Performance Radio. I'm your host, B. Chavez, and as always, I'd like to thank each and every one of you for tuning in yet again for another episode of Sports Performance Radio. Um, Have a really great show on tap, and uh, because of that, I want to keep this introduction to an absolute minimum. The recording with the uh, scheduled guest is a little over an hour, so very much most of the time there is taken up. So this, again, this intro is going to be very streamlined. Uh, a couple of things I'd like to say, of course, is as always, thank you for coming along. And um, this show will be uh, posted December 1st, so it is the last sports performance radio of 2016. So that makes that's worthy of mention. The um, show's already coming up on two years old, so I'm very Excited about that. Very thankful that all of you have stuck with me and that the audience has grown and uh, that the audience is as dedicated as it is. So I really do want to thank each and every one of you. And I also, before even uh, introducing or the guest or talking about the topic, I'd very much like to thank the guest I have, and that is Dr. Mike Isratel. Did an interview with Mike uh, a couple of months back, six months back. And, uh, since that time, we just kind of discovered one another and, uh, have developed a really good relationship with Dr. Mike and, uh, Renaissance Periodization and the company which he represents. And, um, I'm just very thankful for them. Uh, they do really good work. They're really, um, kind of a pillar of the industry. And I've learned a lot from working with them, made a lot of great contacts and, uh, I am very thankful for them, and also for someone of such caliber as Dr. Mike coming on my little teeny show with my little teeny audience, so um, it really is a great thing. So, on to this month's show, December 2016. Um, as I said, the guest will be Dr. Mike Isretel, PhD in exercise science, um, incredibly sharp guy, and what we're going to talk about, well, We is a bold overstatement. What Dr. Mike is going to talk about is the subject of how to make rational decisions. Um, Everything you're going to hear is contexted in sports, in sports performance, in fitness. Um, The title um he basically puts this forward as he would a college lecture which he is a college professor very very obvious that he would do things that way and the title of this when he he even forwarded me an outline and the title is knowledge and decision-making in fitness. And then everything flows forward from there. You know, how to make rational decisions, how to filter out good and bad, sources of information, when you even need information, all sorts of things. And I strongly suggest you listen all the way through to the end. It's fabulous, fabulous material. Um, What I would like to take just a second to do is to really outline that, like all really good ideas, and well-presented ideas. Um, This material translates to everything. It is in the context of fitness, sports performance, etc. But if you just change the title and make it decision-making in job hunting or decision-making in, you know, relationship hunting or, or any of anything, no matter what word you put in the title, if you change just subtleties all of this material carries forward. Basically, this is an outline for critical thinking, for a way to view the world, filter the world, and interact with the world to make the best decisions that are that are available to you at the time. Um, it is really, should be, the fundamental bedrock of the way in which you behave. It's the way in which you interact with the world. So... Again, this is going to be presented to you in the form of fitness, and it's very valuable for that, particularly because almost exclusively my audience, the audience of Sports Performance Radio, is looking for that. However, I'd like to really reinforce the idea that the concepts at work here apply to everything. And if you begin to view the world through a lens of how valuable is the information source, how reliable is the information source, and then use your own knowledge to evaluate the things that that knowledge source says, and so on, and as Dr. Mike will illustrate and, and reiterate almost pedantically, um, ultimately, you are the arbiter of material. You must know something about the subject matter. It must be your responsibility to learn something about the subject matter so that you can ultimately evaluate said material. So it is, is really, really valuable stuff. It's really, really important stuff. I suggest you listen to it in a fitness context, take it in kind of, you know, way how you've been doing things. And then later, much later, possibly start to think of other things in these same kind of context and steps and. I think you'll find that it is very, very valuable. Um, I am very grateful for material like this. Um, uh, I was privy to a lecture very similar to this uh, many, many, many years ago, and it very much influenced how I do everything to this very day. So to me, this was a bit of a refresher, but it was very refreshing and, and great material, and I'm very pleased and privileged to bring it to you. So with no additional ramblings from me, You're going to hear a couple of commercial spots, and then you're going to hear live phone interview with Dr. Mike Isretel. Evil Genius Sports Performance is now accepting a limited number of new clients. If you would like a consult, please email via the Team Evil GSP website. Hey, shut up and listen.
1: All right, everybody, here we are live on the phone with Dr. Mike Isretel. Uh, we have kind of a little different than normal. We actually have something vaguely prepared. Uh, I really think that it's going to be different, interesting, and exciting. And if you bear with it, I think it will be incredibly efficacious to all of you. And it's titled, we even have a title, as I said, a little different, Knowledge and Decision-Making in Fitness. With that, I'd like to bring on the renowned and good friend, Dr. Mike Vizretel. Doctor? Hey, thanks
2: for what? having me on the show,
1: brother. Are you kidding? It's absolutely our pleasure. Oh, well, wow. Well, well. Can't get enough Dr. Mike.
2: <laughs> I think I've had enough Dr. Mike every now and again, but luckily someone's willing to listen to my ramblings
1: today. Where would you like to go with this, sir? How, how do well, we begin?
2: Yeah, you know, I'm going to start to ramble about a topic that's near and dear to my heart. And if you hear anything you like or hear anything you want me to explain further, I would be more than happy to be interrupted so that I could dive into that. Or if you want to add in your two cents about something uh, particularly near and dear to your heart, how does that work?
1: That is going to be great. The subject of intellectualism at large, I think, has been lost. And uh, to some degree, in the fitness world, it's my opinion that it's even at times frowned on. So I'm, I'm sure. really... I'm really interested to see how you're gonna how you're gonna bring this forward and make it palatable. Uh, we'll find out, or perhaps uh, it's just not. <laughs> sure.
2: Yeah. Um, so you know, you and I were talking earlier last week, and we got to talking about how uh, one big issue in the fitness industry is that there are all kinds of claims as to what works, like differential made by all kinds of, people, and that individuals who maybe are not experts in fitness themselves oftentimes in this position where they really don't know how to go about getting the right kind of information and making the right kind of decisions. Because oftentimes, while they have the best intentions at heart, so many opinions can seem so different to one another. that it starts to seem like, you know, just getting lucky and getting to the right source first without wasting the time with the wrong sources is the only way to go about finding truth and fitness. Because there's a lot of fun. There's a lot of stuff people say They say it confidently. They often have quite a reputation. They're very popular, and they're still wrong. So there's a real big impetus, I think, to perhaps go over a couple of techniques that people who are intelligent, yet don't know a ton, maybe are not experts in fitness, there are some techniques that people can use in order to make sure that they're not being fooled nearly as often. Now, none of these are fail-safe, but they are a much better start- than simply starting to read on the internet, buying in hook, line, and sinker to some source or another, and then finding out months or, unfortunately, perhaps years later, that they the source that was trusted was, in fact, way off base. And sometimes people can spend a lot of time spinning their wheels, spending money, and kind of, I don't know, sinking their passion into something that doesn't work all that well or maybe doesn't work at all. So, kind of split this talk or this little uh, discussion into three parts. Uh, one, the first part we'll talk about is how to uh, get good sources of knowledge, how to find people, articles, blogs, media outlets, magazines to listen to, and what other outlets to be very skeptical of, uh, maybe even cynical of, So the first is getting to the right sources of knowledge to make sure you're not being told things that are just radically untrue. After that, a second part, as far as some tools, is how to make decisions. Once you're in the possession of relatively reliable knowledge, you'll have to make some decisions with it as to what you're going to do and how you're going to use it, because there will still be debate even among good knowledge sources. So there's some decision-making tools. And then the last piece is kind of interesting. That's something you and I were rambling on last time. Giving advice if you are now in the possession of qu- quite a bit of knowledge, or some knowledge, how is it best to go and give advice? If people ask for it, if they don't, because I feel like there's a lot of people out there giving advice that have all the best intentions in mind, but perhaps not the best arsenal of advice given. And those three kind of basic sectors all want line of focus today, and I do have to say that the title of this, Knowledge and decision Fitness, and the very kinds of questions we're asking how to go about... Uh, uh, gathering knowledge properly and, and making the right decisions is actually a nod to one of my, uh, a person I respect w- w- incredibly highly for their intellectual contribution to, to my personal intellectual growth, um, an economist named Thomas Sowell. is not just an economist, but is a philosopher and a thinker of sorts. And Thomas Sowell has a book, which he considers his best work ever, and it's not his most popular book, called Knowledge and Decisions one of the most deep pieces of literature I have ever had the pleasure to read several times. If you want to feel really stupid, read that book. And on your first run, nothing will make any damn sense. If you read it again, things will make much more sense. If you read it a couple more times, you will start to get a, uh, an insight into knowledge and decision-making processes that will make you very cynical about politics, but will make the rest of your decision-making processes that much better. So... Um, have to give that shout out, uh, and this is kind of this general framework he gave is what this talk is based on. And he's an economist, but we're applying this to the fitness realm. And I really think this uh, this can help a few folks kind of lead through this really really confusing stuff, the really, very contradictory
1: things they hear online all the time. What do you think, I'm going to shoot in one little thing there. Um, I confess to you that I am by no means. <clears throat> Versed or knowledge in the world of, uh, economics. But one thing I do remember actually just resonated off what you said. Uh, I heard, uh, in a, one of the Senate hearings, I happened to see Alan Greenspan, you know, explaining why interest was whatever the hell it was or something of that nature. And he actually said, and I remember it clear as day, he said, all economists are philosophers.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. For so, sure. And, uh... There,
1: there's my contribution to my sum not, <laughs> <laughs> the explanation by some knowledge of, of economics. There
2: you go. There you In go.
1: It's some
2: <laughs> There you go. All right. So let's get into the depths here. Let's get some good stuff going. First part, sources of knowledge. How do you figure out where to get information from? Because, look, not all of us are fitness experts. There are people out there with very well intentioned that say, look, you've got to go to the primary literature. You've got to read independent, peer-reviewed, individual studies. I mean that's insane for most people. Most people don't have the educational background, not an insult, a literal statement of fact, to read through journal articles of exercise and on training and on fitness and on diet and have any remote ideas to what they're concluding and worse, any ideas to what the shortcomings of such studies are, and worse still, not knowing if the study they're reading is representative of the studies of the field conclusion wise, or if it's just an outlier or a weird study and nine other studies they haven't read for every one study like this come to a vastly different conclusion. You know, and it, it's really easy to see, you know, some, you may think, oh, yeah, I have a cursor cursory familiarity with fitness, I can read through these things. Just try to read an engineering journal. Uh, you know, it doesn't make any sense. And you can kind of go sure, structural mechanics, I kind of feel like what their conclusions are in English, I mean, I can read them, I can understand them. But how do you know if they make making any kind of fundamental flaws in their assumptions in the experiment? Well, you don't, because you're not a structural engineer. Neither am I. So, uh, and, and you could say, well, yeah, but nutrition and fitness is different. Yes, it's more complicated than engineering. <laughs> it, yeah, it really is. It's a
1: biological is. system. It's far more that, complex. Uh,
2: far more complex. So it's one of those situations where you wouldn't ever read... Uh, with structural engineering journals for a hobby and tr- start to, you know, conclude things about them. So, you know, going directly to the peer-reviewed literature, although that is the gold standard, is not for everyone. So what do you do? What kind of tools can you use to make sure you get the right sources short of going to the real source, which most of us don't have the knowledge to even start to begin with or, uh, you know, even to, uh, you know, process any of that information. So first tip is there is no replacement for independent thinking. What I mean by this is the following. Some people find people on Facebook. Myself is one of these people on Facebook that, uh, you know, are experts in their field, make all kinds of statuses about fitness knowledge. And what they end up doing is kind of taking a shortcut of relying on that person to do all the thinking for them. And they basically stop all independent thinking, maybe they never started it to begin with, and kind of rely on a person to have their opinions for them. So, for example, when something comes up and, oh, you know, Artificial sweeteners, what about that? Well, they just go to the person and go, hey, so what do you think? And then, you know, you see them in a Facebook debate later, and somebody says, artificial sweeteners are bad. They say, you know, Dr. Mike Hissertl said they're good, and that's good enough for me. Well, it shouldn't be good enough for you. You have to think independently, because even the experts that you value the most, that you think are the most likely to be close to the truth, they get things wrong. I get things wrong all the time. Everyone gets things wrong. There is no replacement for your own independent thinking. So at the very best, someone who is an expert in their field is only ever going to be a consultant to your opinions, only a guide, only a really good hint, but never the answer. does that make sense, Roderick? What do you think about
1: that? You know, it, 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 a conversation like this is a little difficult for me simply because I've spent my entire life being that guy. I'm the guy that no matter what a college professor said to me, I would run to the library and go, no, I'm going to prove that fucker wrong. He, there's no way he knows that. <laughs> and then 97% of the time, it turns out they did actually know what they were saying. But I was that asshole. I spent an enormous amount of my energy trying, essentially just trying to be a dick and find a flaw in whatever they were telling me. So – As much as I understand that what you're saying is really the the proper representation of of the world, um, it's the antithesis of me, because I'm just, you know, I I trust you more than almost anyone in the field of exercise, but if I even think there's a teeny little sliver I can drive my truck into, I'm going to run to the library and find it.
2: You bet, and that's what you're supposed to do, because as soon as you trade away your independent thinking, you're no longer voicing your own opinions. You're going to be inheriting someone's truth value, but you're also going to be inheriting their mistakes. When they turn out to be wrong, it's going to cause you a lot of embarrassment and worse. It's going to cause you a lot of misappropriated resources. Imagine how terrible it feels to find out that the guru you were following turned out to be wrong on something really big. I mean, we're talking about this is a real thing. There's people who follow low-carb you know, gurus and say, listen, the only way to health, the only way to fitness is to drop your carbohydrates. These people are wrong. And then sometimes the, the, these folks will sign up for a diet with, you know, renaissance, who write them diets that include high levels of carbohydrate for their sport performance and their high volume of work, they get all these incredible benefits, and that, that's great, but then they're, they're left with, they send us emails and messages like, you know, I was low carb for years because I thought Dr. So-and-so was on the money, and it turned out I, I pissed away years of crappy results. <laughs> right? So there's no independent, there's no replacement for independent thinking, that's number one. Number two, this is, a big one, and it requires some investments. Here it is. You've got to know at least the basics on your own so you can vet potential sources of information. And there's no way to learn the basics other than reading basic books, basic fundamental articles. Here's a good one. Going to school right paying attention in school for for younger listeners who're still in school at one level or another learning basic biology and basic physiology and anatomy if you don't know these things you had better learn them at least at the most fundamental level because the way you vet potential sources of info one of the great ways is to see if they have their basic biological claims correct so one thing that people will say, for example, pick on the low-carb crowd again, is some guy will say, you know, insulin is the fat storage hormone, and without insulin, you can't store fat, or barely at all. So if you eat a super high-fat diet, super low-carbohydrate, and even if you're hypercaloric, it doesn't matter because there's no insulin around, or very little, you're not going to store the fat. Well, if you know basic biology and basic physiology, you know that Fats themselves, ingested, adipo, uh, ingested lipids, dietary fats, have no problem assimilating into adipocytes, into fat cells, without any insulin at all. They don't need insulin to translocate. They go right into the fat cell if there's too many of them. So as soon as someone tells you, hey, you know, without any insulin, there's no way you can get fats. Um, okay, insulin's definitely a contributor to getting you fat if the conditions are right, but it's by no means the only way to do it. As soon as someone says, look, without insulin, you just can't get any fat, they have made a fundamental biological flaw, and you need to be really skeptical about anything they say after that. Potentially yet, yet discarding every them clinical as a diabetic source. in the
1: world. Yet every clinical diabetic in the world is not stick skinny. Yeah. Well, again. How it's they just, do
2: it. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and in the same, in that same, I hear that claim all the time too, that insulin is the thing that makes you fat. But yet, if you eat a commensurate amount of fructose, you get a very low release. It's actually one of the exceptions to the XY rule in terms of carbohydrate load or glycemic load. Um, you get a relatively lower release of insulin per fructose intake and yet probably a higher conversion to triglycerides.
2: Absolutely. And, you you know, these people can say, oh, your fructose is just another carb. You need less fructose, too. Well, Well, just dietary fat doesn't need insulin to be incorporated into fat cells. I mean, it just literally goes in there. Fat is, per, the membrane is permeable to fat. <laughs> it just goes right through. It doesn't mean there actually is no fat translocator on cell membranes and adipose tissue. This fat just goes right through the cell. Okay. So, it, it, it's one of those situations where, and there's millions of other, of other examples, we could say that if someone has a, a fundamental flaw in the basics, you already vetted them, they already turned out wrong. I'll make a really quick analogy. It's like asking someone if they could be a personal bodyguard to you in a, in a high security situation, you give them a, a standard nine millimeter firearm and you ask them to inspect the firearm to see if it's fire ready. And they don't know how to take the clip out of the bottom of the gun. They're done. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter what else they know. They have failed a really big test, and everything else they know is probably BS on top of that. Now,
1: and, and you know, and and I really just I really try hard not to make these conversations about me or, you know, in, in, in any way. No, like no
2: inject,
1: inject myness into it. But, you know, because it we have. It is had, your show. <laughs> we, well, but that's not what I intend for. It. <laughs> for um, sure. But, you know, because you and I have had literally dozens of hours, you know, 50 hours of conversations, you and I. And you could tell the listeners right now, how many times do I say in my ramblings, and that's seventh grade science, or you should have learned that in the seventh grade, or, you know, that's sixth or seventh grade biology. You know, that's literally the bedrock of all of this. Like, real simple shit like cell activity, homeostasis. Yeah. If you understand that stuff, you actually understand a much greater birth of fitness than most of the experts, quite honestly.
2: Well, you know, one of the reasons I still continue to talk to you and seek out your advice in, in matters of advanced nutrition and supplementation is because you have, you have to make a mistake in basic biological inference. Uh, a lot of other people I've talked to that I've considered taking advice from, uh, about five minutes out of the gate, they'll say something that makes backwards sense, and I'll go, okay, how the hell am I supposed to trust you with the advanced stuff if you don't even know the basics? And that's, that's a really bad start. So, uh, yeah, definitely you have to know the basics on your own. And there's good resources. I would say textbooks and fun and an actual collegiate learning environment. High school learning is good, but you can read some articles and brush up on the basics. After that, the next tip I have is whatever source you're getting your information from, a good thing is if they have a respect for science, (laughs) a respect for the fruits for science, a respect for the meticulousness of the scientific process. If a person presents as, well, I don't really trust formal science and big pharma or, you know, science may say some things, but experience is better, yes, we'll get to experience in a second. It has its own great merits. But if someone denigrates science even a little bit, you should be very skeptical about trusting them. Science, as a process, is the formalization of proper intellectual rigor that occurs in a person's mind. Science is a formalization of that to the external world. Science is simply an expansion of logical thinking outside of brains and into realities to find out how realities work. If someone doesn't respect the fundamental, radical power of science to organize our knowledge about the world, they're probably, and I'm sorry to say this, not very intellectually rigorous in their own mind. So how the hell can you trust someone if they're literally demonstrating to you that they're probably not thinking... With high intellectual rigor.
1: Absolutely. I, I, again, I hate to, to steer it this direction, but the, the sub, you, you mentioned big pharma, and that comes up so often it makes me want oh, yeah. to pull my hair out. The subject of X, Y, or Z drug will come up. And the first thing I reference is, well, maybe what's in the PDR or what's in the manufacturer's literature. And people, quote gym people, people, turn their nose up and get this really... <laughs> Well, you know, I you know, I don't use that information. I talk about, you know, some whatever, the the, the drug reference, the underground manual, this thing. And those are ex va- possibly valuable resources. But is there even the minor chance that those resources would know more about the fundamental pharmacokinetics of something than the people that developed it and spent <laughs> hundreds of thousands, potentially millions of dollars, and wait, this is the part too, let's, let's wait for this part, to publish that information in a proper manner to prevent litigation. Oh yeah. That's, they, do you understand how important that is to a drug company? To they, they got to have their eyes, necessary material? The eyes dotted and
2: their T's crossed, you bet.
1: Yeah, so... Let's see, we've got Billy Bob Jimbozo, who may or may not have graduated high school, holds this opinion, and then a billion-dollar corporation trying to defend themselves from lawsuits has this opinion over here. Wow. That's a really hard choice to make if you're retarded. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So, if your source doesn't respect science a lot, they don't have to be a scientist, but if they don't have respect for the scientific process, bad news, bad news. Another piece uh, in the puzzle, number four, for our little checklist here on uh, sources of knowledge. A lack of an axe to grind is a really good sign. So what does that mean? If your source seems incredibly biased towards any one position, to the point where they start making irrational leaps and, and arguments, they may actually be correct on that particular position but they're going to be very difficult to trust on anything new that comes up or any other position you're not very familiar with because if they're able to have such a direct and great bias in one situation, they've kind of betrayed to you that, elect- that their thinking is perhaps not as intellectually rigorous and not as unbiased, not as even as you would have right. Some of the most interesting uh, Facebook conversations or interviews you'll ever hear are with folks like Brad Schoenfeld. Brad Schoenfeld, when pressed on matters of hypertrophy, will say things like the evidence would lead us to believe that at the present time, this is likely. And the interviewer, the host of the podcast will say, well, you know, Brad, come on, loosen up a little bit. Why don't you you give us what you really think? And He just simply restates the fact that his current best guess is the following. But it may very well be true that what he doesn't think is the reality is in fact true. So he's probably one of the least axe-to-grind people of all time. It may, at times, make him look like he's almost disinterested in the truth, but that's the best possible place to be to not be biased. If an individual has an axe to grind, if they're really biased towards one particular opinion and really biased against another, you had better hope there's overwhelming evidence to support them. If there is not, they're engaging in some thinking that's probably not going to be rational. A really big red flag in this category is conspiratorial thinking. Your perfect example of the pharma. Well, you see, big pharma just wants to this and that. Okay, how do you know that? Well, I I know. I was um, training at a gym in Brooklyn uh, this past weekend, and I had a gentleman tell me with a very straight face that the pharmaceutical companies you see, Broderick, they already have the cure to AIDS and the cure to cancer, they just were holding on to it for profits because profits make people sick. And, or, I'm sorry, because sick people generate uh, more profit because they buy more medicines. And I asked him how he knew this information. And he said, well, I watch a lot of documentaries on TV. I'm, I can't make this shit up. So, uh, you know, if, if, if you're talking to someone who's conspiratorial, conspiracy theory is, is, is pretty much a really dead giveaway of someone who's not going to offer you a very good glimpse of truth. And here's the thing, some conspiracy theories very rarely turn out to be true. But the kind of people that have conspiracy theories at the top of their lists uh, as modes of thinking, they're not conspiratorial about just one thing, usually. Usually it's a variety of things, and most of them are wrong. It's a paranoia. Oh, absolutely. And do you want your trusted advisor in leading you through fitness to be paranoid? I sure as hell don't. Right? Now, I
1: want to so, throw in something, and, and you're going to roll your eyes, and I'm going to smile. But okay. I, I can think of one example of the value of bias. Um, somebody who I respect, and we've talked about this, and, and I completely and blatantly admitted that he was very wrong. But Arthur Jones comes to mind in that his ardent belief in low-volume training, which does, quote, work. It just probably doesn't work to the absolute optimum. You know, any, any amount of lifting weights, eating food makes you bigger stronger. That's stupid. But my, my point is, is that he was so ardent about it, he pursued it to such absolute absurdity that there's no longer any test to perform. The conclusion has literally been set in stone on that topic. And I... I It's interesting that incredible wrongness can actually have overall value for the greater public because at any point you want to have a conversation about that, you only need to reflect on his body of work.
2: For sure. For sure. And he was someone who was deeply committed uh, intellectually. He was a very, very
1: smart person.
2: He had an axe to grind. He was actually, as as you say, a much more open-minded than most people get credit for. But he's that perfect example of someone who is smart, is incredibly educated, did a lot of work in the field, and still shows how even the best of us can be caught by biases. Now, people you interact with, they, they can have their pet ideas and their pet hypotheses, but if, they, if they're often engaged in really biased thinking and they have real big intellectual acts to grind that it all comes back to that one thing, not a good idea to perhaps put all of your stock in them. Now, they're certainly interesting to follow, and sometimes they're correct, but if you're looking, working with limited time, You have to start a workout program. You want to start a diet. You want to know who to listen to for these basic tips and tricks. I wouldn't go with super biased guy offhand. If you're already an expert or if you already know a lot, you can look into what the super biased people are saying to see if there's any merit because they are right now now again. But as a a, a first mode of operation, I wouldn't choose them. Second to last, experience of doing and coaching a particular activity like the pursuit of fitness is a very good idea, especially if you're looking for real-world tips. Most people are. To put this another way, if you follow exclusively researchers on how to lose fat and how to gain muscle, you're going to come away with some very interesting ideas that may not actually be applicable or maximally beneficial to the process of muscle gain and fat loss because these people have never coached anyone. They don't themselves train with weights. I know numerous scientists, colleagues of mine, who don't work out but do exercise research. And looking at theoretical mechanisms is a very big leap, oftentimes, from applying them. A very big leap. And you miss some things that aren't just quantitative. You can miss some things that are qualitative. For example, if you only listen exclusively to scientists, during some part of the last decade of protein utilization research, <laughs> you could have found out that anything past about 20 or 25 grams of protein at a time is not used to support muscle anabolism. Some of these individuals were vociferous enough, unfortunately, to actually give that kind of advice out, saying, well, you know, you need 50 grams of protein at a time is really stupid, they would say, and here's why, I'm a researcher. The next question you ask is, have they coached anyone to actually be jacked? The answer is no. Have they themselves ever been jacked? The answer is also no. And then as new research filtered in, it turned out their initial prognostications were wildly off base, and I'll give specifics how. First of all, they were working with a population of basically untrained collegiate undergraduate students, and those people weighed approximately 165 pounds on average. yes. For someone who doesn't train and has a very little bit of a funnel for amino acids, uh, the maximum protein expression does occur, 25 grams per meal, spread over five meals through the day, or six meals, that's well, something like a gram per pound of protein, which is exactly what you would conclude for most everyone else. In addition to that, the research has surfaced that, yes, anabolic properties of protein have a certain cap, but anti-catabolic properties go higher than that. It turns out, to get maximally jacked, you have to get big and not lose your size at the same time. So there's a second component that no one was researching that, oops, well, guess I didn't know that. Well, you know, it's, it, it's cute for a researcher to be, oh, so novelly surprised by this new development at a conference. And, you know, he has his little cream cheese bagel from the, you know, refreshment stand while listening to a lecture at a conference. You go, oh, well, I never thought of protein breakdowns in the factory. Oh, so interesting. Interesting to him, but you just lost a year eating way too little protein and you've got shitty results in the gym for training, maybe you should have looked to someone who actually has gotten people jacked before. I actually had a professor in undergraduate uh, institution I attended, University of Michigan, give this example to a nutrition class in which I was in. I was an undergrad at the time, and it was like maybe 400, 300 or 400 people in a class. It was a huge class. And he said that he went down to the Arnold Classic, or one of these bodybuilding shows, and uh, they talked to bodybuilders, And this bodybuilder was eating 12 egg whites or something at a time. And the the scientist guy kind of asked him, like, why are you eating 12 eggs? And he said some stuff, and the scientist retorted with his findings. And the bodybuilder eventually just flexed his muscle, and he was, you know, I know what I'm doing. I'm big. The whole class had a little little giggle at that. Oh, what a stupid bodybuilder. And then this, this particular professor presented his research that it turns out that, um, you could be in positive nitrogen balance from eating as little protein as, you know, insert a very small protein number here. And it never occurred to him, and at the time, I already knew enough to debate him, but I wasn't going to do it in class, of respect. Uh, positive nitrogen balance isn't to just positive or not. He measured an incremental rate. <laughs> you could be in positive nitrogen balance or really, really positive nitrogen balance. And in addition to that... This is research conducted on barely trained undergraduates that he's expanding to people of double or triple the muscularity. He's not integrating the fact that uh, protein has, you know, break anti-breakdown properties. He's not integrating the fact that protein has interesting appetite-suppression properties. And this gentleman he was speaking to that was eating all these diets, probably on a contest diet. And all of these things snowball into the fact that, look, if you do science, that's a very good start. But if you want real-world tips from people, it's a good idea to go to people that have been in the real world. You know, I come to you, Broderick, for advanced scientific advice on a lot of these issues. But you're a former competitive bodybuilder at a very high level. You have coached numerous people in bodybuilding and powerlifting. You've lived a life. So when something looks good on paper, and then it ends up not panning out in real life, you probably know it didn't pan out in real life. So if you're looking for real little tips, Experience, actually doing, and actually coaching, very good. Now, last point on sources of knowledge, all of those things I just mentioned should be combined for best results. So, first, be an independent thinker. Secondly, know at least the basics so that you can rule out people that are completely off base. Second, or third, respect for science by your source, really good idea. Your source being unbiased, really good idea. Your source being experienced in what it is you want as an outcome, awesome idea. If you find sources that combine all of those, or at the very least, know who to take sources from, and by this I mean, if you're interested in the basic science, basic scientists are great people to trust. If you're interested in application, people who are very good coaches or athletes who have respect for the science, who have applied the stuff, are the best people to trust. That, if you use those filters for sources of knowledge, after you apply all those filters, two things are going to happen. One, the number of people you're going to follow on social media is going to decrease radically because very few people pass all those filters. Secondly, you are going to have be, been left with a group of individuals whose information now nah, you got to be dependent. So I, I was going to say you can trust. You can't trust it, but you can tentatively start to look at it with an open mind and be reasonably assured that it's at least worth your time. But you're going to have people that you follow, sources of knowledge that are a very good start, so you can begin to make decisions. About what they're seeing and whether or not they're going to apply. Got anything to add to part one?
1: I can't agree with any of that more. Uh, I was going to, it's funny that, it's funny how such different people follow very similar tracks. I think I told you this story that I had a very similar, <laughs> I had a very similar interaction in, uh, a nutrition class at college. The professor went through all this, you know, kind of an introductory thing talking about the, um, you know, blood sugar, muscle glycogen, liver glycogen, um, you know, and, and adipose tissue is a storage of fat. And somebody said, what about protein? And this person said, well, when you're talking about protein, you're really talking about amino acids. And the body really doesn't have a mechanism for storing amino acids uh, other than a very small sub you know, uh, amount of substrates called the free amino acid pool. And it's basically just what's in your bloodstream. And of course, I raised my hand and I went, w- what, do you, what do you mean the body doesn't have a mechanism for storing protein? And he repeated himself and I, and I, and I stood up and I said, I, I'm, I'm storing 20, 30, 40 kilograms more protein than anybody in this room. <laughs> and and uh, just complete dumb looks and, and confusion and uh, really n- nothing came of it other than I think everyone in the room thought I was a fool, but I was pretty sure I was onto something. Yeah. Wow. But it, it, it is your, your point. I, you know, I, at least as I take it is, It's amazing how academics can really know a subject inside and out and yet have so very little understanding its relevance to actual application. Absolutely.
2: And the good academics will tell you that they're not experts in application. You know, I um, was a work-study student at a muscle physiology lab at the University of Michigan. Muscle physiology, direct research at the University of Michigan, top-tier DLM institution. I asked a couple of people in the lab who were literal bench scientists, literally exploring muscle physiology. And I asked them, you know, about muscle growth and training. And they literally all told me, and it was incredibly amazing. Uh, I'm not really sure. You know, that stuff gets really complicated. I just know basic muscle phys, but I really just, I, I don't train with weights, and I have no idea. I, I, I wouldn't take my advice. And I was blown I was away. I was like, oh, my God. On the one hand, I was like, that sucks. (laughs) I wish they knew stuff. But on the other hand, I was, you know, it makes a lot of sense. So got to make sure that the person and the people you're taking advice from, if it's scientific advice, amazing. Go to it. If it's practical advice, they had better have some practical experience. All right. Point number two, tools with which to make decisions. Mental Mm. tools. Now that you have these people in your life, some way or another, you have good opinions around you. How do you figure out what to do, what not to do, which boat to sail on, which not? Got a couple of tips. First of all, always begin with a calm state of mind. Let the truth reveal itself to you versus actively searching for it in the place where you think it will be. That last part, actively searching for the truth in the place where you think it will be, is the literal definition of preferential bias. The truth can sneak up on us. And people who are open to new ideas start with a very calm state of mind. They really do and they don't have a bias to begin with. They let the truth present itself to them. When I first came to you for advice on you know, advanced supplementation and nutrition, I was wholly unaware of several of the things that you ended up telling me. And when you first told me that, I was very, very skeptical. Because I had literally been led to believe much different things. I had been led to believe that what you were saying was not nearly as important as what you were seeing, uh, as, as how much stuff. But I approached it with a calm state of mind, or at least I tried, and after all the facts were examined, it turned out you were correct. Now, if I had just gotten behind what I knew, and really argued the shit out of it, and didn't try to see your perspective, I would have been missing something. I would have been missing the truth. A lot of people that led to the truth the most are the ones that start with with a calm state of mind, and they let the truth come to them just by examining and the second point, very related to the first, is you have to be open-minded to all possibilities. Open-minded, not to the point where your brain falls out, not like hippie at Woodstock open-minded, but you have to understand that maybe you're wrong about some pretty fundamental things. Maybe, even through weird mechanisms, some things do have merit. We will give a really quick example. When you learn basic physiology you start to understand in nutrition research that anything past about a gram of protein per pound of body weight per day doesn't get you any more jacked. So when you see bodybuilders consuming up a gram and a half of protein per body weight per day, you could very easily think, well, they're really stupid. But what we haven't attended to is the psychological difference. When you're on a cutting diet, you're eating few calories, and it's long enough and hard enough, hunger starts to destroy you. And I don't mean that in just a psychological way. Well, you just gotta toughen up as part of the diet, sure. But hunger is a literal stressor. It causes mental stress, psychological stress, in turns into physical stress. The secretion of stress hormones occurs, like cortisol, etc. And cortisol, etc., and all the other stress hormones have literal negative effects on your body. So if you're freaking out all the time because you're starving to death. That is negatively going to affect your physique through the psychophysiological loop. You eat more protein and perhaps less of the other macronutrients, so long as you don't go too low on them and get into deficiencies there. You can experience significantly less hunger and actually get a better physiological response, not because of a physiological direct role of protein, but because of its common. If you weren't open-minded to all possibilities, you could just read the primary research and be like, all oh, bodybuilders are all stupid, and you know that's true. Some bodybuilders are really stupid, but some are not, and the average is something really really big. Only if you're open-minded can you get all of the truth. If you just go Z and write for what you think is true off the bat, and then argue your way out of the rest, you're going to be missing on and stuff. Thoughts?
1: You know, I again, I agree with everything you said. I actually kind of kind of view it a little different, or at least I, I frame it a little different. And that is, uh, like your example of protein, uh, yeah, about two grams per kilogram is the sweet spot for all the real. Physiologic protein expression benefits. Any less than that, you might be shorting yourself. Any more than that, you're probably just eating, quote, unnecessary nitrogen. On a, That is if you were in a laboratory as an exhibit. If, if you, that's if there's no real world anything. You don't have a mind. You don't have hunger. You don't have a lifestyle. You don't have all these other things. So the way I always frame it is the perfect clinical answer is X but there's a sliding scale of application based on non-laboratory conditions. Yep, absolutely. And absolutely. those conditions could be vast and varied, ranging as your example, because I know hunger is a personal pet uh, concern for you, but it, it sure. could also be job-related. You, know, you happen yep. to be out in the sun all day or in the cold or anything that's creating a physiological stressor that would not exist in a laboratory sure. changes the parameters of your experiment.
2: Or or how about this? Someone who really isn't big on food. And I know guys like this who diet into a show and just never really get hungry. And, and they hate masking more than anything because they have to stop themselves and they hate it. They never really experience a ton of hunger. and uh, But they do uh, complain that on their way into a show when they diet down, when they start to reduce their carbs a lot, they start to lose fullness, they start to lose size, the training, intensity, and volume start to get really, really bad. And that's how they get smaller towards the end of the prep process and end up looking not so great. So with them, you might actually give them 1.8 grams of protein per, per, uh, per kilo, uh, or, or something even smaller, because they may have no problem conserving muscle with a small amount of protein, but you could, can give them competently more carbs for the same calorie values, their training gets better, their muscles get fuller, they diet into a show on more carbs, everything goes better. So it's one of those situations where, again, open-mindedness to their particular individual
1: concerns could be a very good thing. Yep. Again, just yeah. simple sliding scale. Know know the clinically right answer, and then know what side of the scale will generate what additional changes. Um, I, I mean, I I think that's kind of not to be an ass, but I kind of think that's my approach to the universe at large.
2: It should be <laughs> everything's pretty stuff. much
1: a sliding scale. I mean, literally. I mean, morals and ethics and everything else. I mean, there there is a fundamentally correct answer, but there's also Jesus, I can't do that or I'll die, so now I have to skirt to one side or the other.
2: Point number three. When you're open-minded, and it's time to think, you can't be completely open-minded, and to, to quote a very famous quote, so open-minded that your brain falls out. You have to use your accumulated knowledge and your ability to logically infer from one point of knowledge to another to frame various choices and alternative views as probabilities. How do you do that? You know basic bio you know, past literature you've read, um, and you can take all of that, frame it in your own logical abilities, and assign probabilities that certain things that you're examining are true or not true. For example, take the issue of genetically modified foods. If you know at a basic level, in biology, there is no fundamental distinction between genetically modified foods that they just have a different gene or a different series of genes in places and genes are fundamentally biological and that genes have protein expression effects. and it's really not something that's, oh my god, it's artificial, there's a little robot in there or something then you know it it really demystifies the situation. And then you also are familiar with the literature, know that the genetically modified foods have an incredibly awesome safety record as a matter of fact, spotless to date. If someone tells you that, hey, you know, this new kind of GMO wheat is very dangerous, it's going to kill us all, you don't have to outright disagree with them. But you have to go through your accumulated knowledge on GMOs and say, okay, GMOs, nothing special, nothing magical, no need to fear just because they're GMOs. Number two, they have a great safety record, a track record. That means the probability of this person being correct, just at face value, using only logical inference in your past model, the probability that they're correct about GMOs of a new kind being really, really bad, is going to be low. Now, the second-to-last tip goes right in with that. You have to give the least probable outcomes the most examination. So if someone says, hey, you got to eat more protein to get huge, you don't really have to give that a ton of thought. that makes sense. Everything I know about it makes sense. It's a high probability that that claim is true based on all the logical stuff I know and all the data I know. It makes sense. I'm not going to look at it too much. But if someone says, hey, this kind of GMO wheat is really bad for your health, and that is not a probable outcome. You need to really dig into that because that question is by no means clear. And that's what requires the most examination. In doing so, last point uh, for tools to make decisions, you always want to circle back to strengthen your knowledge and influence base. So, for example, if you conclude, after looking into this kind of wheat, that it actually isn't bad for health, this person radically misinterpreted some researcher. He just made some stuff up on the com. You take that new knowledge, this kind of wheat, genetically modified, is also okay for health, add it to your knowledge base, so that when the next person comes in and says, you know, genetically modified cotton, it's really bad for you, it's going to kill us all, now you have not 99 pieces of, you know, of inference and in literature that GMOs are probably okay. You have 100, because you added just one more. Does that make sense? As you continue to learn things Always circle back to strengthen your knowledge and influence base so that eventually when someone tells you, hey, I heard that, you know, insulin is just the only thing that makes you fat, you're going to have such a huge knowledge base after years of this kind of stuff and examining claims that you're going to say, not only are you wrong, but I can explain to you why you're wrong better than you can explain to me why you're right. So, yes knowing things is a very good start. But and updating that, your views is a very, very, very good thing that makes you much more resistant to being fooled later on.
1: And in that explaining why I'm right and you're wrong uh, also completely elucidates my complete total lack of any meaningful friends in this world. <laughs> um.
2: <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. You just tell everyone they're wrong and explain to them why and embarrass them. Now, of course, yeah. there's you know, there, I rarely, rarely, if ever, is that a good, uh, good use of social kind of social dynamism is to is to ostracize people and tell them wrong. Oh, but hey, at the very least, some of us were confrontational people. That's totally cool. That's how we roll. For other people, you don't have to be confrontational. But when someone at the dinner safe table says, you know, I think GMOs are really bad for health, at the very least, you can just smile to yourself and go, well, at least I'm not going to be duped today. You can talk with them and. Be totally cordial and ask them all, what do you think? How? You can mock them underhandedly. Well, they'll never know the difference. But it, you don't have to, you know, just tear people apart and ruin family dinners. But uh, I know you do, Broderick. But I've had my issues, too.
1: I, I just was thinking, of it, like, you mean it's not cool to just call people you haven't talked to in 10 years just to remind them right. they're still wrong?
2: Yeah, you know that's you just summed up my twenties basically, but uh, (laughs) you know that's uh, you know just just the knowledge there is 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 at least a very good start. All right, so now we've got sources of knowledge covered. We have the tools to make decisions, which fundamentally means we're unbiased. We have a calm, open mind. We examine things. We learn from our past mistakes and our past corrections to establish forward. looking probabilities, so when someone says, hey, I heard the sun's not going to rise tomorrow, you don't give that a whole lot of merit if you get real skeptical of that stuff real quick. Once we know how to make decisions, at some point we're going to be in a position to be giving advice. And this is one, we're not going to spend a ton of time talking on it, but we are going to get really pissed and ranty. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm going to bring up something that I'd like you to rant on just a little
0: bit. This was it's
2: a setup. Uh, oh yes, it's a very big setup. So, the point I have here to make is, point number one on giving advice, don't give advice in areas with which you are only personally familiar, unless you have to, okay, have to means there is someone on an airplane dying, and no one knows any biology, and they have, uh, you know, some kind of CPR device, right, or a defibrillator, and everyone's clueless as to how it works. You at least understand the theory behind how it works, a grounding electrode, or what have you. You might be the only person who can do the best job there. Okay? That's damn near the only example I can think of. Right. However, anything else, stick to what you know best. Do not give advice out on things with which you are only cursory familiar example that I'll give to you, which you can please expand on as far as uh, maybe some other things like that you've seen, which I'm sure you've seen many. I was on a forum, uh, which I do in my spare time just to piss myself off, I think. It was one of these steroid forums, and it was, you know, like mesorx.com or something. And uh, there was a discussion of letrozole, which is probably one of the most powerful anti-estrogens ever invented. And one of the guys on it, this is a real living human somewhere. Everyone, you know, what's asking is electro, just a basic electro form and, you know, what side of side effects, dosing profile, how do we use it? People give it advice of various qualities. One guy says, you got to be careful of retro because it can give you gyno if you run it too hard. Wow. I mean, an anti-estrogen that gives you Would the very thing anti-estrogen, so right, that gives you the very thing that anti-estrogen was designed to combat, that one hell of a trick. That's like telling someone, like, no, look, if you take 10 milligrams of blood pressure medicine, your blood pressure's going to go down. If you take 50 milligrams, it can go up really high. No, it fucking can't. You're out of your mind. And this person was called out by someone, right? And and, and here's another really uh, funny example. Uh, same electroform, another person, there's more than one of these, goes, you got to be careful of electro because it can shut you down really hard. And someone was like, what do you mean, like, shut down testosterone production? He's like, yeah, man, it'll just shut you right down. And they're like, no, it doesn't do that. It actually can boost your testosterone, your free testosterone, by taking it, you know, away from conversion to estrogen. And and he's like, no, man, it shuts you down. And they're like, do you mean that it reduces your sex drive? He's like, yeah. And they're like, you do know that reduced sex drive can occur independently of a lack of testosterone production. He's like, oh, oops. Uh. That was literally his response. L-
1: like, libido actually is largely estrogen-mediated. That's... Uh, I,
2: I mean, and that's why Electro blows your sex drive completely off. But here's the deal. His response at the end was like, oops, I didn't know that. Dickhole, why are you giving other people advice? At what point did you find yourself in a position to give advice? I, I don't think this person... I mean, maybe that person can't read? I don't know. Robert, what do you think What drives someone to give advice when they're in such a ridiculously absurd, comically absurd position? to not be
1: doing so. You know, you I about? actually hmm. have two opinions on this subject, and I'll give them both to you. One, because everything you've talked about in the last hour, people don't have. People have no intellectual rigor. They have no intellectual... Um, uh, they, they, they give no intellectual effort. They're lazy. They're just intellectually lazy, and that makes all the problems you mentioned. But there's another problem, and it's very specific to the world of steroids and drugs and performance-enhancing stuff. And that is that the scientists in the 1930s and 40s and 50s that developed all this stuff, the original organic chemists that brought to the world sex hormones, did such a fucking good job that the worst drug applied in the worst way works like fucking magic. And because of that, some very stupid, lazy, ignorant people can get really amazing results. And that's interpreted as knowledge. That, that is my problem, is that the chemists who came before me did so well that you really don't need to be particularly smart. If you take a gram of anything, you grow like a fucking weed comparable to the general population and you look like a hero. Even though you can't spell testosterone, much less (laughs) enantiate. But, and that is a very frustrating thing is that some, you know, that literally like standing on the shoulders of giants, you have literal intellectual dwarves standing on the shoulders of chemistry giants, and they look like fucking superheroes,
2: quite literally. And it it all works well to get you jacked in the short term, but what it doesn't do is get you the precise level of jack you need to do your best, and it also destroys your health along the way if you do it really stupidly. Funny you should say that they can't even spell testosterone. It's great when someone asks a question on a forum, and they radically misspell the name of the compound. To where I almost want to respond, I don't ever comment on these things. I want to be like, if you need to spell the a compound, maybe you shouldn't be using injectable compounds. <laughs> I don't know. Thing,
1: and the other thing it does, and 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 this should be to my personal uh success, although I've kind of had my own failings in that, is that you then, or you being that person that can just, you know, take anything and get some results and look really good, the problem is is it's very rate-limiting. They can only go so far because their intellect is going to be their limiting factor. Yep. And it's why people like me can make relatively minor changes to someone's array of something and give them radically more results, usually at less cost and less risk, but it, yeah. it, it is it is a problem that I face on a regular basis is that, you know, it, it's, it's such a well-understood pharmacology in, in the sports world. It's just so well-understood that it really just works well.
2: Yeah.
1: Creates yeah. its own and problem, it, unfortunately.
2: And, and it can perpetuate ignorance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good problem to have, but a problem nonetheless. So, Absolutely. point number one, don't advise people on stuff you don't know. Point number two, when... Uh, this is a really quick one. I'm just going to say the sentence. I'll move on to point number three. Point number two, unsolicited advice is usually highly effective. Okay? Highly people effective. do not listen to unsolicited advice. They don't give a shit because they didn't ask you. So not give it out. Okay? Uh, people ask me all the time, like, do you correct people's technique at the gym when you're there and they're doing it wrong? Well, fuck what I do that for. First of all, they're going to get offended and they're not going to do it. Second of all, uh, you know, if I did that, I would only do that at the gym because everyone's training wrong according to what I know, or everyone but three people, and then I would just never work out again. So unsolicited advice, generally a bad idea. Another thing, if you see people getting a lot of unsolicited advice, probably not a good idea to listen to them because they usually have access to grinds, and that goes back to advice, for example. Next point. Yeah.
1: Go ahead. I will, I will throw this out there, and it, it's, it's something, um, I don't know if I do it as much as I should, uh, but it was, it was something that, um, actually that Dan Duchesne said out loud at a little seminar that I attended. And, uh, it was, it was interesting to hear someone like him who was kind of renowned as the expert and the guy. But something he said on a, on a regular basis throughout the conversation was, I don't know. Oh, yeah. He, it, when, whenever a point came up that he was less than clear, he didn't, fill it in with some stuff. He didn't skip over it. He, just, he would just point at that and go, I, I, I don't know. Absolutely. He said, you know, I, I, I that's on my list of things to pursue. Or, you know, if I ever meet the world's foremost expert, I'm going to grill him on that, but I don't know.
2: Yeah. And, and actually very related to that is point number three. You can give, if they ask, generalities of advice to most anyone. But specifics require the kind of insight only a personal or coaching relationship can give. If I ask you, hey, listen, you know, is master on an athlete a good general drug to put on muscle with, you can say, yeah, mm-hmm, sure. And that's totally fine if you say, but if I ask you, hey, Robert, you know, I've got a friend that wants to run 750 mast and uh, should he stay at 750 or go up to a gram? How the hell do you know? anything about that man's situation. He could be an 18-year-old high school kid who needs to be drug-free for another 10 years before he touches stuff. So the answer could be nothing at all, anything up to, well, you know, uh, a isn't going to do shit for you. You're trying to win the Mr. Olympia. You need two grams, right? So I think a lot of people, when they give advice, they want to help and they want to give people advice. I have people messaging me all the time on the Facebook asking for all kinds of advice, but unfortunately, too many times, my answer is, you know, I really can't tell... Because there's so many individual variables involved. And if I was your coach, we'd be able to te- start teasing out these relationships if I knew much more about you. But in your specific case, I can't say another really good example is injury. You, you know, people ask, hey, you know, I got this pain in my hip. Like, what's up with that? I mean, my God, do you know how many differential diagnoses there are for hip pain? Like a thousand. And I'm supposed to just give you advice of exercises? I'm not even so sure, exercises are what we prescribe, right? So it's okay to give general advice to most anyone. But be very careful about giving us specific advice. If you're asked to give advice and someone asks you for specifics, you can just tell them, hey, look, you know, I'd love to know that about you. And if you're a coach you're in the business of coaching or consulting, you can simply give them a list of fees. Say here, you know, uh, Dr., Dr. Quinn Hennock, a good friend of mine, is a very good PT. After several questions on Facebook, he'll send a link to his scheduling program for for consultation. And it's not because he's tired of giving out free advice. He gives out more free advice than damn near anyone I know. It's because in order to dive in to get your question answered, you need a block of time to figure out what the hell is going on. you got to run like hell from people that are willing to give specific advice at the drop of a hat. Very, very run like hell. Because if they're giving specific advice about individuals with bare minimum information, you can almost tell they're Thoughts on that,
1: brother? I, I, I'm literally I'm just sitting here grinning like a Cheshire cat. I, I, I agree. I agree entirely. The, um, I, I get that. You know, in in what I do, you know, coaching people with diet, nutrition, and even yes, pharmacology, um, is the level of questions that I ask them at. at invariably, no matter how amenable the person is, invariably there's some point where they will say, why are you asking me that? Why do you want to know? Why do you want to know if my brother is muscular?
0: Why why do you want to know?
1: And and my response is, there's no such thing as too much data. And you never know where a a relevant data point might lie. And to collect that kind of data, as you said, it's a I don't know if it's quite the right word, but it's an intimate process. You have to be Communicating with the person.
2: You bet. And oftentimes that's stuff that actually gets revealed over a coaching relationship. So there's a consulting relationship which can occur for several sessions and you can get to the bottom of some things. But sometimes you need a coaching relationship. Something that lasts for weeks and months to really figure out what that person needs, especially from a muscular development standpoint. If someone says, you know, should I do incline dumbbell press or do I need to do incline, you know, barbell presses because, you know, maybe for my shoulders or this and that. You gotta try them both for several weeks before you can say, okay, this one results in some shoulder pain, but not enough muscular development. This other one is really good muscular development, but no shoulder pain for the clear solution. On paper, sometimes there is no answer. and Even you can ask someone a million questions without trying something, you'll never know. So,
1: and, and it's easy to give advice. You know, and this is where I have serious failings because I, as I think we both understand, lack a certain amount of understanding of the human condition. But there is also that human condition, you know, it sounds like a little bit of a cliche, like, you know, oh, what's the perfect exercise? And the offhanded answer is, well, the one you'll do. But the reality is that also, that is relevant. That's real. Yeah. Some people simply have a greater emotional attachment to this thing or that thing. And because of that, no matter how close it is on that sliding scale I mentioned, it might still be a better answer than the perfect answer if they're going to pursue it better. And that again, so, that requires a level of intimacy. You have to fucking know the person, yeah,
2: yeah, for sure. So anyone who's giving out generalities, you know, and that's what I do on facebook all all the time, I give out general advice, and people share and like my posts a lot, and they say it you know, sounds great, I agree, it's great, but you'll very rarely see me giving out specific advice. Uh, I, I, I I'd love to. I just don't have the kind of insight that I have to with most people. Um, lastly, I'm giving advice. If you're not sure that you know the issue of the topic very well, don't feel like you need to chime in. Bad advice is worse than no advice. When someone's asking, hey, I kind of like, my knee feels a little weird when I run, but it feels okay when I squat. What do you guys think I should do? I'm sure that many people listening to this have all kinds of ideas about where to start to think about what the knee problem is. But if you're not really familiar with the etiology of knee injury and you're not a PT or you've never had a hurt knee yourself, your grand ideas about where to start may put that person on a several week or several month experiment that turns out bad. So good advice is why don't you go see a medical practitioner to get a fucking diagnosis. Then we'll know what's wrong. And then after that, it's all downhill. Uh, but they, people seem to think that, you know, they have to chime in. And I find myself that, you know, in a lot of the situations on, on social media, where people ask me, and they'll send personal messages, or they'll just ask me on my wall, and say, you know, what do you think about the situation? And I'll say, you know, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. And I, I feel like back in my old days, before I was educated and esteemed or whatever, it would have been a kind of ego insult to myself. God oh, damn it, I don't fucking know anything. It's so embarrassing to say that I don't know. But nowadays, I'm getting pretty confident to not just try to sound cocky, but I'm getting pretty confident in, in that I know some shit pretty well. So it's okay for me to admit that I don't know everything, right? I'm not bump-rushing into trying to be an expert on all things. If you know someone, back to sources of knowledge, that has a fucking opinion about almost everything, don't run, be very skeptical. So, you know, I've, I've asked you several times uh, your opinion on various basic nutritional Uh, Things You've often said, you know, Mike, you probably know that better than I do. (laughs) And because, yeah, that that is my level of expertise. I've asked you other questions on, you know, more advanced supplementation stuff. And, of course, you get to rolling. And that's why we have the kind of relationship that we do. But if you just knew more about everything than everyone, you don't actually know that. So that means that you're making giant mistakes. If someone chimes in on every fucking issue, you know you got a bad deal. And I'll, I'll give you guys one example about me really quick. People who have messaged me about this or asked me on my wall will be kind of smirking to themselves when I say this. I don't know, dick, about injury. I mean, basic shit you learn in any master's and PhD program on injury management when you learn about it for two fucking weeks in a score programming course. That's it. Oh, and of course I have insights from my own injuries, which means balls compared to someone who actually has a, a physical therapy degree or actually has a medical degree. People ask me, hey, I'm injured, what do I do? Man, I can tell you how to train around the injury really well. I can tell you once you're cleared how to train back from the injury really well. But about actual injury management, about what to actually do to make it better, I have no fucking clue. So when you're hurt and you ask me, I'm just going to tell you I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. I could wax, you know, wax poetic about all these mechanisms and hypotheticals and give you all kinds of advice, I'd be fucking lying and I could get you hurt more or just piss away your time not doing the right things to make you better. So if you're not sure that you know the issue very well, just shut the fuck up. It'll help everyone, including yourself, to lack of a a better motivational reason, give you less embarrassment.
1: I, I agree entirely. I feel that way. You know, on a daily basis when I'm consulting people, if, if you're comfortable that what you're doing is working, have at it. If you know, want different views and views grounded in a much broader, uh, you know, experience, talk to me. But there's sure. really no middle ground on that. Yeah, absolutely.
2: So just to close out this, this general discussion, here's the deal. There are no shortcuts to the truth. If you want them, you're going to be going on a wild goose chase you got to study, got to practice your craft, practice the logical approach to thinking and to information searching, get better at reasoning for fitness claims so that you can not be fooled, be on the right side of the coin more often than you're on the wrong side. Make sure you know how to vet sources of knowledge, use the right tools to make decisions, give advice intelligently, and that's how to think through fitness. And if you know anyone or yourself in a past experience that violated a lot of these, you're going to see a lot of failing. And if you do these most of the time, you're going to be able to dig through the world of fitness and end up being not super wrong. Because I always have this kind of not fear in the back of my mind, but this eventuality that happens to some people, which is this big kind of uh antithesis of what we're talking about. This is the thing that can happen if you don't apply it. I know people in the world of nutrition world, people that have you know consulted me on various nutritional matters. Or I am friends with them on Facebook or Instagram or something like that. I know people that have fallen for every single nutritional fad since 1995. In the
1: mid-90s. I was going to put the year earlier, Ned, but okay.
2: <laughs> sure. Well, you're a little older than me. There you go. It makes sense. So, you know, in the mid-90s, they, they thought fat was the literal devil. In the uh, early 2000s, late 90s, they thought that olive oil and avocado oil could cure everything. In the in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, they thought that saturated fats and bacon just made you a health god, and they were putting bacon of everything and coconut all oil that stuff. It's all coconut oil. Okay. Shortly thereafter, shortly thereafter, there was the coconut oil thing. Then they were gluten free because gluten was poisoning us all. Nowadays, they know that everything in nutrition comes down to the gut biome. The gut biome is everything, and there's not even a gut. There's just a bunch of bacteria. That if you piss it off with artificial sweeteners, you're just gonna die. But if you don't piss it off, you're going to be healthy forever, and all disease can be tied to the gun biome. Don't be one of these people, unless you want to look back on like 15 or 20 fucking years of being wrong about everything. And just as wrong as these people are about everything, because they don't have these proper abilities to filter knowledge and make good decisions. Because they're being intellectually lazy, for lack of a better term, and just trusting people off the bat without vetting them properly, without using these decision-making tools. And, of course, these people often give terrible advice. They're paying the price for having been wrong about things for decades. And usually they're pretty healthy because they do work out. and They eat really well anyway. But they've, at the very least, done two things. Pissed away a shitload of money on stuff that doesn't work. Supplements and special oils and shit like that. And, number two, needlessly restricted their lives from being full, enjoyable, fun lives like they could have been because of these various ideas. Think of how many people under-ate on dietary fats in the 90s because they thought fat was poisonous. I mean, a ton. Think of how many people ate a shitload of coconut oil on everything and cooked with coconut oil because they thought it was this elixir of life they really didn't even like how it tasted. and They got sick of it after a while, but hey, canola oil is really bad. Even though it tastes great and it cooks really well, don't use canola oil because it's industrial and it's going to kill you, right? You get this huge effect where you have a limitation in your lifestyle because you keep thinking that these extreme things are true. If you want to look back on 10, 15, 20 years of being fucking wrong a lot and paying for it, great, forget about this whole conversation. But if you want to take some stuff from this, what it can just make you do is just make you write more often,
1: which I think is really valuable by itself. And you know, it's, it's funny, because I'm going to throw something in here that's the weirdest thing, but um, I actually, speaking of economists, it's funny, I actually got some strange offhanded um, financial advice from the great bodybuilder Tom Platts. Okay. Uh, who, by the way, is financially incredibly capable. Um, he's made himself a lot of money uh, through a sport that very few people have made any money from. For sure. But anyway, he was remarking uh, on this kind of v- this very subject, uh, but he, he had a much different way of expressing himself. He was just very animated and talked in metaphor, and he was a very interesting guy to listen to. But anyway, he was equating. Um, you know, success and failure in the gym and gym training practices to the stock market, and he said, you know, really, really rich people happen. The, the the actual statistic, apparently, or at least as he presented it, was really, really successful people are actually only successful about thirty percent of the time. But those thirty percent successes, consistently, wildly overwhelm the seventy percent failures, and he, he said, so it's really. You know, he said, he, what it is, is it's not that they're right more than everyone else. They're right about more of the fundamentals than everyone yeah.
2: else. Yeah, sure, sure. And mm-hmm. and that was
1: his, you know, his his point is, is like, you don't have to have every minutia right. He said, but if you have that 30%, kind of like that 80-20 rule, but he used 30. Mm-hmm. You know, he said, if you have that 30% down, he said, over the long term, you're going to, your stocks are going to do better than someone else's stocks.
2: Yeah, and it's the same way with knowledge and fitness, that's... You know, if you know and can vet the basics, you can worry about the small stuff as little or as much as you like. But if you trust a variety of improper sources, if your decision making tools are off, if you give the wrong advice all the time, then you're gonna be wrong a lot. And I guess right, you so know, let's see
1: the MD forums gone, get big forums gone, uh, Rx <laughs> forums gone, Elite Fitness should be fucking bombed from the sky. What's left, what's left, Doctor Mike? <laughs>
2: You know, the medical journals are a good place to start.
1: <laughs> yeah. Wow. yeah,
2: And, you know, forums are okay as long as you bring your intellectual tools with you. I've actually found some gems on the forums. But, you know, as soon as you start reading a post and someone starts misspelling compounds, you can just pretty much skip that post. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's not worth your time. But uh, yeah, well, that, Wait a minute, uh,
1: you know, you've had conversations with me, and you know my keyboard's possessed, so don't, don't put an keyboard. enormous amount of stock in spelling. Uh, well,
2: I also don't see you on the forums,
1: which is another That's very good, good point. Side. All right. Although um, I was speaking to a female bodybuilder the other day, and the, con- the, the sentence was supposed to say, she made, and then some, something else, and my know, keyboard no. took it on itself to autocorrect to she male.
2: So female. I knew that was coming.
1: Yeah, so and when you're and when you're talking to an you know an androgen enriched female, that's actually not the key term. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's kind of a dare I say a sore subject.
2: <laughs> very, very well that's all I have on the subject, Roderick. About that yeah, tonight.
1: that's all. As as if that's all, my friend. Um that in itself was a college course in critical thinking that uh, I'm sure my listeners will appreciate. And, uh, probably not have been exposed to in that fashion, so that in itself is enormously valuable. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, as always, I appreciate, and as always, remind everyone where they can get even more Dr. Mike.
2: Oh um, my, if you're into that sort of thing. Uh, renaissanceperiodization.com, I, uh, well, I'm now blogging more often on there. And, uh, we have a lot of books on there and stuff like that, really cool templates. Um, at RP Strength on Instagram, follow us, really cool. Uh, a lot of before and after pictures, a lot of cool tips. At RP Dr. Mike on Instagram, mostly have naked pictures of me. Uh, and at, uh, or not at, uh, Mike is Rachel on Facebook, and it's a public profile, so come follow me, troll me, we'll have lots of fun.
1: Dr- Drunken Spinal erectors and all.
2: Yes! That was a sweet picture. <laughs>
1: All right, Uh, with all of that, uh, we're going to sign off. This is B. Chavez from Evil Genius Sports Performance and Sports Performance Radio, and Dr. Mike Isratel of Renaissance Periodization. Until next month, stay strong.
0: Thank you for listening to Sports Performance Radio.